You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hello, welcome to the show. It is Friday, June the 2nd. As you can probably hear, the hubbub and surround sound suggests we are buried deep in the media centre, uh, just to the south side of the racecourse on Epsom Downs. Lydia Hislop alongside me today as we look forward with excitement, yes, but with some apprehension and trepidation to the Betfred Derby Festival. It's a weird one, Lydia but a good one nonetheless at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the racing is fantastic and I'm really looking forward to concentrating on that, but it has to be with a sense of apprehension that we look ahead, particularly to, to, to tomorrow with Animal Rising, having said that they will be targeting the race for their protests. Um, they have uh, they've, they've made it clear that they're going to ignore the, the, the injunction that's been put out against them um, and that they are going to try and disrupt the race. And the fact is that Epsom is so porous as a race course, it is so open to the public that it would be impossible to block every every way onto the track so we have to feel I think that it is it is inevitable that something some form of disruption will happen because if the race is disrupted we are likely to analyze afterwards how the situation was handled we may as well get our excuses in now how do you think the the jockey club have done to this point well I think that they have learned from Aintree I think at Aintree Um, I I think from their side of things they had some plans in place but I don't think that necessarily the sport really quite believed that what did happen the infiltration would happen to that extent I think they're a lot more realistic as to what is what is likely to happen here Um, and although I think I think they've even accepted that disruption is inevitable and so I, I suspect that what they have done is focused on contingency plans so I would imagine that they've got a range of responses depending on what happens when and where and I think they are, they are both better prepared and I hope that they have better communicated the various scenarios to the actual participants because I felt that that was a weak spot at Aintree. Uh, broaden this out eyes will be on this not just for its own sake because it could potentially be quite a dramatic story but also the way in which uh, the law enforcement interacts with protest with direct with direct action and this and this might be the most public exhibition of that that we've seen in in recent history yes and also I, I because the laws in this country have changed and um, there has been a crackdown on um, interventional protest uh, as a result of things that Extinction Rebellion have done, that Just a Hall have done and now that Animal Rising slash Animal Rebellion previously have done and I am in favour of protest. I also take the point that down the years uh, the law isn't necessarily keeping up with uh, what uh, people, the public morality is and that in order to get uh, things changed uh, that sometimes some protest that stretches those boundaries is necessary. You know, however, I, in, in this scenario, I feel that the, the, the thing that Animal Rising is wanting 
they are not being completely honest with the public about what it is. Okay, just flesh that out for me. I mean that they they talk about how want to have a, a conversation about uh, the public's relationship with animals. Yeah. And they're using horse racing. They've said that they, they that they don't have a welfare issue with horse racing. They believe that horse racing uh, loves their horses. That there is no welfare issue with horse racing. They're using horse racing, understandably, because it has a very high profile, in order to shine a light on the conversation that they want the whole country to have about its relationship with animals. And in recent days, members of Animal Rising have been talking about uh, whether pets should be allowed so whether you should be able to have you know dogs and cats and, and guinea pigs and there's clearly a, a fissure within animal rising about whether whether they agree on that even I, even amongst themselves they don't seem to be able to agree about whether they think that dog and pet ownership should be banned or whether it's perfectly fine mm. we like a fissure i think a fissure is good news in this in this instance well i, I, I think so i think so because I, but also i, I well, exposing the, the, frailties, exposing cracks in the argument, exposing cracks in their in their ideology, has got to be something that we continue to do. Yes, and I'm referring to an interview that, that Nathan McGovern did with uh, Nigel Farage on GB News on the 31st of May, where he talked about he said that yes, uh, pet ownership should be should be outlawed. The following day on Sky News, another member of Animal Rising said that she had a dog and a cat, and that she thought that that that, that kind of ownership of pets was perfectly fine <laughs> what are you what, what, what are you stroking i said definitely a cat but i said this is not going to make the cut so. <laughs> just just for, for, in case it does make the cut <laughs> nick was there by stroking an imaginary cat in a sort of blow felt kind yeah, of she way definitely owns a cat there's <laughs> a long white fluffy one anyway back back to the point if they can't agree they need to agree that amongst themselves because they need to be honest with the public about what it is that they are asking them to do and how they see the future to be and you know this this is is relevant because you know for the the public some members of the public might be quite ambivalent about what they feel about about horse racing but horse racing is just being used here as a vehicle to have this conversation i'm not which isn't to say that horse racing hasn't got things it's got to address we've spoken about this many times on the pod but in this instance here animal rising need to be honest with the public about what it is they are trying to say about our future relationship with animals and what it should be i mean even by its normal kind of friday on the race course standards this is a podcast that is going to be doing a lot of tonal pivoting through the next half an hour i like so, a pivot you like a pivot there'll mm. be lots of pivoting right food coming up hats all that kind of stuff but first of all we need to try and work out what is going to win the derby if indeed the derby goes off this saturday oh it must go off this saturday surely I yeah, mean, yeah. That, okay that, enough think, enough the We've question been... is whether it goes off in the itv window isn't it yeah which it, it may not it'll, it'll, it'll be somewhere and if it's not on itv1 it'll be on itv4 and fingers crossed it's on itv1 it'll definitely be on racing tv either which way which is where you and i will be indeed so who is going to walk into that winner's enclosure i think it's going to be military order um, I think he is progressive. I think he's got tactical speed. He's a full brother to a derby winner. He's going the right way. I, I, I just, I just like everything about him. I can't think of a of a downside really. I, I bowled you a, you know, just a, a solid length ball. You've shown the maker's name. You've got right in behind the ball. Played the very solid forward defensive there. The most un, un- Lydia-ish. I think for a derby. Selection. Why was that unlidderish? I don't know. It's just a very 
he's a very, very solid, safe choice, isn't he? Well, I feel like I can pick holes in, in so many of the, of the others, really. Um, with, with the rest, I'm wondering about this, this drying ground and whether he's got the tactical speed with that knee action. With Auguste Rodin, I can't have how abject that run in the 2000 Guineas was. Now, Little Big Bear had an had a, a actual excuse. He clipped heels and then he's come back over a distance that's more suitable and won. Uh, Auguste Rodin had a point, slight brushing. Well, August Rodin might have had an excuse, but if he did, we don't know about it. Well, so that's the problem. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So from the from where we're sitting, we don't we don't know what the reason for August Rodin because it, it isn't the interference because that was absolutely minimal. Um, I've got. I mean, Dubai Mile ran really well when fifth in the two thousand guineas. Will he actually want a mile and a half? Will Passenger want a mile and a half? He was unlucky in the Dante. Um, the foxes, the way he I quite hangs, like him. Well, he just hangs. I mean, it's not just the the last time he's done it several no, times. No, Andrew Balding conceded that on the pod this yeah. week. I heard, I heard. John Gosden, rarely a man prone to big, bold statements. Wait. When it comes to confidence behind horses, I mean, he's prone to big, bold statements about all sorts of other things. But when it comes to you know big, confident shouts about how they're going to run, he said a rest is ready to run a bold race. Okay. I thought that was encouragement enough. Yeah, I mean, I like the horse. I think I think he's he's a he's a he's a very good horse. He will stay. Here's a question for you: Who do you think that Aidan O'Brien thinks is his biggest danger? Passenger. Interesting. Okay, because I was looking at the draw and I was thinking the Bally Doors are in 10, 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. And so the race is going to be shaped from the outside, isn't it? Yes. And so you're looking at military order in nine? Well, military order nine and a rest in, in amongst the, that lot, isn't it? 13. 13, yeah. I think the race is the race is going to take is going to be shaped by what happens from the stalls to the outside of the gate. Agreed. Um, and then you've got at the other end of things, uh, White Virtue. I think has been done no favours in stall two. That's really not going to help him. I think. Um, stall two's never won the derby, you know. No, <laughs> everybody keeps telling me that. Uh, stall one and two, a disadvantage in fields of twelve and upwards. So you know, I don't think a dear my friend has got a stamina question as well. Both of those have already had what were doubts about their chances extended by their draw. I think. What do you think of Spreewell? Uh, well, I I don't know enough, I don't think, about Spreewell to have formed a, a strong view about whether or not he can win this derby. That's my. I, I've watched his races and I've been quite impressed. A lot of it's come on soft ground. His pedigree suggests he might want a quicker surface. Yeah. If that's the case, then he's got to be some sort of a player. I think he's a player, definitely. Um, I think he will want a quicker surface. I think I think that will that that is suggested by his full sister. What's the um, the there's a there's a horse in the pedigree that that, that is uh, is is very similar and, and wants this kind of kind of ground. But um, yeah, I think I think he's a he's a player. So you think you think they see military order would see military order as the main threat? Uh, military order or arrest probably. Right. Okay. Okay. Shall we see what the rest of the press room think? I can hardly wait. John Lee's mirror online. Um, I'm sticking my two pounds on August Rodin and, uh, in the belief that he will handle the conditions and the trip much better than he did at Newmarket. Uh, uh, Richard Willoughby, programme editor ITV Racing. My each way tip for the derby is King of Steel for Ammo Racing. Um, I think it secretly um, it's been well liked, highly thought of, um, and they wouldn't be running it for the sake of running it. Richard Passad, ITV Racing this week. Uh, my derby tip. Passenger, surprise, surprise, Sir Michael Stout will have a seventh derby win. Sam Turner from the Daily Mail, and my fancy for the Betfred derby is Military Order, who actually gets the mile and a half really well. He's bred to do the job, and be very disappointed if he's not bang there. 
this is Marcus Armitage, Daily Telegraph. Uh, my tip is going to be Dubai Mile, uh, really the only horse with proper solid Group 1 form this season and last. Uh, I think we'd all be kicking ourselves if we hadn't tipped him and he won. Hi, David Ord, Sporting Life. My fancy for the derby is Spreewell, who I think has sailed under the radar the back of his win in the Leopardstown trial. I liked how he hit the line hard that day. He's got a nice change of gear. I just think he's sure to go well in a fascinating derby. Uh, this is Lee Mottersed, senior writer for the Racing Post, and I am hoping that military order will do what his brother Adiar did and win the derby on Saturday. I love the way he won at Lingfield, finishing off the race really strongly. I think there's loads of Adiar about him. Uh, I think an Adiar type performance would be good enough to win a derby that is deep and interesting, but perhaps is not vintage in terms of the quality of the lineup. So, military order for me. Hello, um, Cornelius Nyssen here. I've just got this real feeling that the prize is going to go to Ireland, but not to one of the more obvious places, to Spreewell, to uh, Moon, County Kildare, to Jesse Harrington. Fact is, the horse has uh, done its winning on rain-softened ground in great style, but there's every chance it'll be even better in the type of conditions that will be encountered at Epsom. Oh, Greg Wood, The Guardian, Dubai Mile. David Yates, Daily Mirror. It's 123 years since the last pair of full brothers won the Derby at Epsom. 1900s, Diamond Jubilee supplemented the success of his sibling, Persimmon, in 1896. I believe that Adiar's victory of two years ago can be added to by his full brother, Military Order. Winner of the Lingfield Derby trial last time out. I think there's plenty more to come. A third victory for Charlie Appleby and Godolphin. Jonathan Harding from the Racing Post. I'm going to side with passenger for last year's winning trainer, Sir Michael Stout. Luckless run in the downturn could be quite special. Uh, Lewis Portis at the Racing Post. Um, I'm going to go with military order for Godolphin and uh, Charlie Appleby. Fred Doan, Betfred, sponsoring the Derby for the first time. I think there are a lot of people who thought a bookmaker would never sponsor the Derby. It is happening. What does this tell us about racing's relationship with the industry? What does it tell us about the Derby's position in society? Uh, what is Fred Doan going to do with the Derby through the next three years? Uh, I've been talking uh, to the man who is the founder of Betfred, one of the most prominent bookmaking firms in the country, and who himself has had a, an interesting and not always harmonious relationship with the industry and I began by asking him why he's lending his support to a race that began all the way back in 1780. Um, it is the most prestigious black race in the world in my opinion. It knocks everything out of court and what I can't understand is why some of the exclusive brands, the Carches and the Rolexes of this world have never got involved with this race. It's beyond me. You know, it, it, it's um, from a boy who comes from Salford and started his first betting shop in 1967. It's been a long, long journey. But it's been a good journey. And I never would, in my wildest dreams, have expected to sponsor the Derby. It's, uh, I'm very humble and I feel very privileged to be able to do it. Was there a part of your, of your working life where you thought that even if you wanted to sponsor the Derby, that you wouldn't be able to because the race course or the industry wouldn't withstand the idea of a bookmaker sponsoring its biggest race? 
yeah, I uh, I expected that these uh, no horrible bookmaker would be ever allowed to sponsor the derby, but things have changed. Things have moved on, haven't they? Um, as I say, I'm I'm so proud to be able to do it, and I think life has changed, especially over the last few years since the COVID years, etc. And people are more enlightened, and uh, you know we. We're, we're proud sponsors of it and we're going to make a great job of it. We've done a three-year deal to sponsor and I promise you it was a bit quick this year, but next year we'll be really organised and we're going to make Betfred and the Derby proud of one another. Okay, let's let's focus on, on the positives and Betfred's engagement first and then perhaps I'll come to racing's relationship with the, with the betting industry and where it is now. Okay. First, first though, Fred, what are you going to do to make the Derby special? Well, uh, we, we, we have a marketing team at Betfred that I'm very proud of. We've got some great people working from it. All, all originated from the shop floor, i.e. betting shop managers, board markers, etc. And we throw everything into it. I learned my lesson a few years ago when we started sponsoring. The first, our sponsorship was snooker. And we put money into it and we did nothing about it. We didn't help. We just put the money and sent the cheque. And it was a disaster. It was a great lesson for me that. It's not only a writing a check out, it's getting behind it as well. And we'll publicise the Derby as well as we pub publicise Betfred. So it's a three-year deal. At the yeah. end of these three years, what do you as a company want back from this sponsorship? What are you hoping to achieve? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a lot of sponsorships. And I think um, nationally, the name Betfred is is there or thereabouts now. But internationally, I mean, we've opened businesses in South Africa. We're about 60 betting shops there and an online business and a lottery business. And we're in the States now. We're in 16 states in America. It's the international that we'll get out of this. Because if you can't get an international recognition from sponsoring the British side, I don't know what you do. Fred, it won't be lost on a lot of my listeners that your own relationship with horse racing has been a long-standing one, but it hasn't always been at equal levels of harmony. Now, you're sponsoring the Betfred Derby. Five years ago, it was you that reminded me of this. You said racing and, and Betfred are going to have to learn to live without one another. What's changed in that time, Fred? Well, let me say this. I never, ever lost my love for racing. I mean, I was at Haydock Park presenting last Saturday and I love every second of being there. That's my local track. I never, ever fell out with racing. I fell out with some of the characters who were running racing at the time. They, they, it was We were treated like second-class citizens and I, they all moved on or being moved on and there's different people running it there and the relationship is much, much better. When you said you were being treated like second-class citizens, can can you explain how and and maybe by whom? Well, how I'll tell you. I, I used to go to race courses when when we bought the tote. We bought the tote in two thousand and eleven. I don't think I was ever forgiven for buying the tote. And we would go to race courses because race racing wanted to fight for themselves, but they had it was an impossibility. They didn't have the wherewithal. They were just dreaming about it. And we bought it off government and we paid a full price for it. But then we had part of the deal was that we would have to continue racing, uh, sponsoring racing for seven years, which we did do. 
and we're sponsoring probably six to seven hundred races a year. Nobody else was anywhere near that. But I turned at race, uh, up at race meetings and I wouldn't even be acknowledged or not a handshake or thank you for, for attending or thank you for sponsoring. And you felt second class. Uh, and it was noticed by my people, people who worked for me rather than myself. Um, I, I've been bruised and I can take the bruises, but it, it became an insult. And we, we promised racing that we would put nine million a year in it. We never put nine million in, we put 11 a year in it. So we did our bit for racing, but there was no thanks there. And then there was an insult I was offered by racing to, to buy the tote from me. And the offer was £7 million. I said, look, it's not for sale. £7 million, it's an insult. I eventually sold the machine, the tote, for £120 million. So it just shows you what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about insults. So we walked away from it. Uh, but we're back now. Let, let's move on from all that. The people who moved on who would, were there then, and I'm quite happy to get on with it and work with people. That's It's quite quite interesting, this, though, because we all make the assumption that these decisions and these relationships are are based primarily on business sense, on what happens in the boardroom, on what deals are offered and what deals are struck. From what you're saying, though, do we underestimate the power of personality? That, in fact, the secret to, to any good relationship is simply people behaving well towards each other. Uh, absolutely. Look, I, I started this business with my brother in 1967. So, it's, as I say, it's been a long journey. Probably there's nobody in the business now that was in the business in 1967. So I have got a little bit of experience in it. Everything I've ever done, if I, I shake hands on the deal, the deal is done. You don't need it in writing off me. Obviously, it gets put in writing. But some of the characters there don't perform the same way. We would talk to people. We would agree things. Then it would all change. That's not the way I want to do things. And I'm in a very lucky position now where if I don't want to work with people, I don't have to work with them. I don't have to be nice to people. But believe me, I don't insult people. And I treat everybody with respect. And I think that is a big word, respect. You know, do as you want back. And that's the way I look at things. And we never got it. But but as I say, I don't want to harp on about this. The crew that are in there now on the other side of the uh, table are decent people to deal with. And I'm sure we can deal with them. And do you think this is emblematic of where racing is with the betting industry right now? You've seen the restructuring announcement last week and much of that is is heavily based on data provided by the betting industry to horse racing do you believe that the racing and betting industry's symbiosis is in what you think is a good place no i don't i think there's still um there's still a long way to go between uh, uh, betting and and racing um i mean i think we were i was talking yesterday it's been uh, uh, it's been it's being thought about now about bringing tax the tax that the, the levy on turnover rather than profit and i think it's going to be a disaster because if this goes back a long time but i remember i've been in the business a long time myself what used to happen 
Illegal bookmakers will stand at the back of your betting shop taking bets with no tax. That's when the turnover tax was on. I don't know whether you remember it, Nick. If you, when the, the turnover tax was 8%, the customer had a, a choice of paying on with the, with the tax. Yeah. So if you wanted a yeah. pound bet, Just. pound payments on. Just. Or, when I when I first started going into betting shops, Fred, I th I I'm sure I was writing one one oh nine or two eighteen. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. Or it could be deducted from your your winnings. So if you won fifty quid, they'd knock eight percent of the fifty quid off. So, but ninety five percent of customers would pay the tax on. But what happened then? Illegal bookmakers say, "Why are you paying the tax? You can have it tax free with me." And they were so cheeky, they'd be in the back of the betting shop, take, in your shop, taking bets tax-free. Now, that happened, and it can happen again, and it is happening with the offshore uh, illegal, but not illegal bookmakers. That's not quite the, quite the, the right word. Bookmakers who are not licensed in the UK are taking bets. And believe me, our turnover is massively down, especially on racing. Racing and, and bookmakers have got to work together. The game, the business is very, very difficult now. It's not the same as it was years ago, and it's not easy to survive. Also, Fred, if we're talking about the, the benefits or the merits of a turnover model based a, versus a gross profits model, we can only surely gauge that once we know what percentage of turnover we're talking about. Yeah, but, you know, it's all... When we, when we talk it across the table, everybody thinks that the bookmaking business is an easy business to run. Believe me, it's not, and it's getting more and more difficult. And if you um, if you overdo it, you'll kill the, go the goose that's laying the eggs for you. Fred, I want to I want to finish by talking about about you a little bit more about your your own motivation and about why after such a long time in this industry and having built up a very successful business, you are still hard at it still as busy as you ever have been and still driving forward well i just love working i love being in the business if i don't want any of this to sound conceited Nick, but i'm in many businesses now and the main list of overall successful business if we don't, if we're not successful, we kill the business. We we don't we don't want to be running zombie businesses. And I like working with young people and backing young people with good ideas who want to get out of bed in the morning and change their lives. And I've made some some of the people that work for me multimillionaires. But I, you know, I don't give anything. They have to earn it. But I support them, and it's not only supporting them with money. It's supporting them when the banker are knocking at the door, banging the door down, we want our cash back, giving them the confidence to do it and giving them the confidence to do deals. So that's what keeps me going. I want to keep working till, till the day I die. I have a nice life. I've got some good friends. I enjoy working. I'm still very fit. I train every day of my life. Um, and I want to keep doing it. Fred, thank you very much for talking to me and best of luck with this Derby sponsorship. It's been lovely talking to you, Nick, and uh, I, I wish you well and all, all your listeners the best. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nick. Bye-bye. That was Fred Doan, founder of Betfred, the sponsors of the Derby, uh, first bookmaker sponsor of the Derby. Uh, Lydia, what did you make of what, what Fred had to say? I, I enjoyed the interview, for mm. sure. It, it, was, it was really interesting, and he's, he's going he's to keep on walk, working 
Um, he's clearly uh, still loves the sport in that kind of way. It was interesting to hear how he felt about how racing had treated him previously in the wake of the sale of him buying the tote. Um, and it, it, I, I'm sure it, you, you do want to feel wanted as well as just, you know, having your name plastered around a race course. I, I, I do def, definitely get that. Well, that's why I asked him whether it was a more of a personal thing than necessarily strictly a professional thing, because you can have bad blood in the boardroom, but I sort of felt from him that he, he'd felt personally mm. slighted and snubbed. Mm. I mean, and there's, he, no, there's no real... You can't really excuse that, can you? No, I mean, it, obviously it can be a perception. Yeah, and we don't, know, yeah. we don't know how it was meant from the other side. But clearly it bothers him because although he was saying, let's move on, he did talk for, for some time about, you know, this, and gave some examples about how exactly he felt. I think um, horse racing's position with bookmakers has changed a little bit in light of COVID. I think that the way in which um, via people betting, that was the only way that there was any income to the sport for a sustained period of time, has made horse racing have a much more grown-up relationship with one of its key funders um, you, you there is some evidence that uh, the betting industry and the racing industry are working in more in closer cooperation in terms of uh, the, the strategy that is coming forward whether or not you agree with that strategy um, certainly in the in the short term um, but I do think there is horse racing is going through a problem with a, a more mainstream sponsor the kind of thing that animal rising is you know the the, the place where horse racing is sitting in the public consciousness yeah. the protests such as animal risings are are not helpful i, I would say from a what used to be called a high street brand or a mass consumer brand point of view i can understand that interestingly fred started that interview by wondering why luxury brands mm. hadn't got in behind horse mm. racing whereas they do get in behind other horse sport well why hasn't okay cartier have got the cartier awards but why, why wouldn't a brand like cartier get behind the dub interestingly they've got aston martin sponsoring the dash tomorrow yes i think that was a really good thing that's a big a, plus for epson i thought that was a I mean, really I'll, positive I'll slag news. british racing about their pathetic uh, attempts to get sponsors across the board but that is a that's a massive plus and I think it's right uh, that a sponsor like that, and I think that Fred Doan is right to point out that that is a, a very easy fit for horse racing, or should be. There's a lot of people with a lot of cash washing around horse racing. Why wouldn't you want to um, advertise directly to them? Well, it won't have escaped anybody's notice that nearly all the owners and breeders, indeed, of horses in this year's Derby here at Epsom are superpowers, global racing superpowers, whether they be from the UK or Ireland or the Middle East. Or wherever. Might that change 10, 20, 30 years down the track as multi syndicate and fractional ownership grows? And we've seen it twice in the United States in Kentucky Derbies that micro share syndicates have had a, a big role to play in winning horses. Now, you know that on this podcast, uh, we have a, a close relationship with my racehorse and have been following the progress of, of their horses and their expansion into Europe through the last couple of years. And there's now a partnership that is taking hold between my racehorse and one of the leading racecourse groups in the United States. First Racing, the parent company of Santa Anita, Golden Gate, Laurel, Pimlico and Gulfstream Park that may well take fractional ownership into another realm. My racehorse founder, Michael Behrens, is with me now. I, I think maybe, Michael, it's appropriate that it's Derby weekend when we focus on the elite thoroughbred and, and accessibility to the sport as one that, that this announcement is it is taking place. Tell me a bit more about how it's come about. 
Yeah, so um, I, I think it is a perfect timing because I think we're about, you know, bringing uh, the most elite bloodstock uh, to, uh, you know, to everyone, democratizing ownership. And, you know, Santa Anita themselves specifically, I started this kind of app in Southern California and they were, they, they welcomed us open arms. Um, I think we met a few years there when we were first getting going and they saw the vision of what could happen if you democratize ownership, you open it up. Uh, we had a great relationship, just as a, uh, a traditional business relationship, and that kind of just grew over time as we kind of collectively were able to grow the, the you know, the app. I think we're just under 100,000 users right now. A lot of our horses, for obvious re run, uh, reasons, run at first tracks. They've got a real, you know, commitment to innovation, progress, using technology to kind of bring racing into, into a new era. And they, they see this platform as doing exactly that. I, you know, obviously, I firmly believe that if you fast forward 10 years and you throw a stake in the ground, you're going to see a very significant percentage of horses owned by the crowd across the globe. We've seen it very significant in three jurisdictions in the U.S., Japan, not us, but the Japanese racing clubs in Australia. And we're continuing to see it in, in each market, the interest and excitement around getting fans involved in a, in a non-dilutive, truly authentic way is uh, of significance and, and first saw that uh, as well. So from your experience of racing in Britain, how would that apply here? Do you see that as an applicable model, given the way that, that racing is structured in, in the UK and throughout Europe? A hundred percent. I think one of the, you know, one of the challenges that we see is we've kind of just kind of, like you said, we just started getting uh, involved in, in the UK and racing is that, you know, there are some challenges outside of big days. Uh, some of the purses are, are, are challenging. It makes the economics of racing day to day to be difficult. A lot of those horses wind up having to be sold uh, relatively quickly to international markets. Um, and it's just kind of the part of the, the game right now. I see the ability for the crowd to come in to be able to buy into elite bloodstock, to partner with those that want to keep their horses in market for a little bit longer. I mean, I'm not fooling myself that we're going to change the entire economics of the game. We're never going to be able to sell, you know, local horses internationally to to continue to, you know, to, to align with what the economics of racehorse ownership are. But we do it for joy. We do it for the excitement. We have to take risk off the table when it comes to fruition. I think a model like ours that allows you know owners to be able to take some risk off the table to be able to stay in market longer will prove to be a very significant factor in kind of you know uh, um you know in, in, in thriving in, in that ecosystem finally michael i'm interested to know how you through my resource and your partnership with first are pushing horse racing into other sporting realms and how those partnerships might ultimately benefit racing I think overall, what we've learned is that there is a uh, it, democratizing ownership of any asset is a complicated, you know, equation of variables. You've got technology, you've got uh, you know regulatory compliance, you've got media, you know, uh, challenges when you're dealing with you know six figures of of fans that have now kind of turned into to owners. And so we've spent a significant amount of money in the last couple of years in developing the infrastructure, the foundation, the ability to democratize ownership in different marketplaces as we've obviously expanded and launched into the uk ireland australia and that investment here that we're making that first and others have been participatory in, in this round is allowing us to double down on that we're going to be able to expand this into other markets and just be able to bring in more and more um asset classes i mean you can think you know motorsports you can think of lots of different types uh and i think rising tides lift all ships i don't know you need to be fair on the direct correlation in terms of our expansion to other sports and what that has on racing. I think fundamentally for Experiential Squared, our parent company, 
be able to take this model that we've refined over the last couple of years and scale it, I, I think will be significant, you know, overall and just this shift that you're seeing globally of, of you know, asset democratization. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the direct impacts on racing with our expansion, I, I think that's, that, that remains to be seen. Michael, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. And, and just staying, if you'll allow me, in America for the moment, even though it is Derby weekend, I think this is pretty important because this all came to prominence during Derby week at, at Churchill Downs. And there have now been 12 fatalities during this meeting at Churchill Downs, which has created not just national attention in the States, but international attention as regards horse safety. And additional measures were announced yesterday, including a pause of track-based incentives, such as trainer bonuses and purse payout allocations to every finisher through last place, restricting the number of starts per horse to four starts during a rolling eight-week period, and ineligibility standards for poor performance. Horses that are beaten by more than 12 lengths five consecutive times, ineligible to race at the track until approved by the equine medical director to return. And these initiatives will go into effect immediately. Lydia, we've seen this before, Santa Anita 2019, immediate action by racecourses in attempt to, to stem a, a really unfortunate and aberrant tide of fatalities during one particular meet. It's such a complicated area. We've been asked to deal with it today. I'm happy to. I, I don't really know where to start in truth. I think my concern is that they're not based on any kind of scientific understanding and I hope it wasn't the intention, I'm sure it wasn't the intention, but it kind of shifts the blame for uh, mistakes onto something that horsemen are doing. And there is no scientific basis, as far as I'm aware, uh, that backs up any of the edicts that have been brought in there. And this comes back to something that I've been urging the industry to do in Britain, which is to have a centralised digital medication and veterinary um, database for all horses, not only because that allows um, a, a, an understanding for the regulator about what, what is going on out there, it's also better for the horse having a, having a full profile, it's easily uh, reachable at, a t at any point when somebody needs to understand a horse's uh, medication and treatment history, but m far more important than that is population studies, and at the moment uh, I don't think any racing nation, and I'm, you know, I'm aware that this goes out around the world, so um, I'm sure I, I could well be wrong, and I'd be interested to hear if any nation does have this, but has robust population studies that can tell people who race horses and host venues where horses race and watch races um, whether they know that if um, a trainer does X or a vet does X that Y is more or less likely to happen I don't think I mean we in Britain we don't have um, have any information about what a quick reappearance whether that increases risk or, or not uh, long absence does that does that mean a horse is at increased risk and if so for how long we don't know whether treatment X might mean that Y is more likely to happen we just don't know and until all of this sort of scientific ba yeah. uh, 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 basis on horses in training is known then how can you make edicts I, like I, this? I think the instruments are just so blunt all the time and of course the, the knock-on effect of having you know blunt instruments like this is that you are going to render the sport less appealing, less enjoyable, less competitive over time and people will say well hang on a minute that's a price that's worth paying because you, you've got to do something to uh, reduce catastrophic in injury and fatality but if you look at it in the round catastrophic injury and fatality is is falling 
if you get an aberrant spike, you've got to look at the reasons why there might be that spike. Yes, quite. And if there is any commonality in the 12 fatalities that's taken place at Churchill Downs, it is that they have all taken place at Churchill Downs at this meet. I'm not saying the track's to blame. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the track, but that is the one bit of commonality here that you can be you can be sure of and it has to be properly investigated in that in that which i'm, kind which I'm sure it will be you in know that kind of way and but the other point is that if you by creating these um rules if other nations other tracks other horsemen um do those things that have been outlawed here elsewhere it implies that they're doing the wrong thing but it implies that they're doing the wrong thing on the basis of nothing well, of course, once again, Whirlpool visits Epsom Downs and the Derby is a big part of the Whirlpool take during the course of the year. Jamie Hart is with me to, to preview the, the Derby from a Whirlpool vantage point. And Jamie, first of all, you're just off to get married today. So what on earth are you doing doing this? I do not know. But congratulations, first of all. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to it. And the Derby, of course. I, I hope so. I hope you're looking forward to one more than the other. But from, from a Whirlpool uh, vantage point just tell me why the derby this year is particularly interesting and i'm particularly fascinated by some of the stats that you've sent me on on jockeys who are over and under bet yeah it's, it was in the whirlpool of course the whirlpool for the people that don't know is, is where all of the world's totes the biggest totes come together and bet on these really big race days so we've got money from all over the world going into the derby pool along with all the other races the the eight race card but we've looked at all of the old whirlpool stats over the last couple of years since we've been running it and some jockeys are obviously very popular so um if you bet into the whirlpool through the tote on say holly doyle you only beat the SP 57% of the, of the time. She's the most popular jockey in Asia. So whereas if you bet Kevin Stott, Kevin Stott has been a bigger price on the tote than the SP every time he's run in a whirlpool race. So, and strangely enough, when, with, when Kevin Ryan and Kevin Stott are, are both together, then, then the tote beats the SP 100% of the time. So I don't know whether the Asians have got a, an issue with the, with the name Kevin, but it just it seems to be unlucky for them. Of the trainers... Michael Bell has a 100% record for being bigger on the tote, so he's, he's one of the least popular out, out, out there. But And the most popular is Michael Stout. He's, he's, so he's, he beats um, the SP only 67% of the time, so everybody else is above that. But, it, yeah, Michael Stout, Charlie Fellows and Hugo Palmer are the, are the three most popular. And the least popular, Michael Bell, Tim Easterby and Saeed Bin Sirur. So if, you, if you're looking at Saeed Bin Sirur, Kevin Stott, those kind of those kind of runners, they tend to overpay. So that's that's where you need to be looking. This is absolutely fascinating. I don't know why it's fascinating, but it but it is somehow. I thought I didn't think passenger was great value as it stands, but you're telling me that on Whirlpool he's gonna be he's gonna be a terrible bet. By contrast to the Derby, then, which horses do you think are are going to be playable on Whirlpool relative to their their likely SP? I've been looking through kind of Aidan O'Brien's record in the Derby. He's, he's had 92 Derby runners. He has had eight winners. But looking at the prices of those runners, there is no correlation between the price of the horse and the position it finishes in terms of Aidan O'Brien runners. He's won as often with the big price ones and been placed with the big price ones as often as he's uh, had hot favourites win. So I, th I'm, I think, I, and given our, the history that we've talked about before, where um, the, the Asian market really doesn't like second and third strings, I think if you're looking at Adelaide River and San Antonio, they will be massive value. And given the past kind of history, playing those in your exotics, your trifectas, your quinellas, the, the swinger, the quinella place, 
that they could be massive. And there's a number of times when when uh, Aidan O'Brien's had three runners in the race and it's that 100 to 1 chance it gets, gets placed. So I'd, I would be leaning in that direction if you're looking for a bit of value in, in the whirlpool betting through the tote. <laughs> back, here in the, back here in the media centre at Epsom, uh, this podcast has gone up a few notches, it has, to be, it has to be said. I reckon this might be the first time in 754 editions that my wife might listen. Because Congratulations. We're go- yeah, I know. We're going beyond the confines of even trainers, jockeys, owners, breeders, bookmakers, sponsors that I might refer to as legendary. And we've had one of them on the show already. Uh, this man is a legend. He is Michel Roux, or as we call him in our house, Chef Michel. Um, well, welcome. Thanks so much for, for coming to see us down here. You've got a busy couple of days ahead as well haven't you oh absolutely but it uh, for me it's the uh, it's the one in the calendar that i i most look forward to it's uh, yeah racing here at epsom is is la creme de la creme and, and is, is the derby something that you've been either very aware of been watching or been coming to since you were a, a small child i know you didn't grow up that mm. far away well absolutely but um, but <laughs> no is the simple answer uh, i i love uh, racing, I love being here, but Dad was the one that that was really into his racing. Uh, he he used to study form, and he used to uh, he used to listen to <laughs> to the wine tipsters tips for well, God's sake. Oh my God, why did he do that? Exactly. <laughs> I was me thinking he was a man of ex- exquisite, quite literally exquisite taste. I think it was just to humour him. This is a, this is a great part. <laughs> so. Michelle, tell me a little bit about um, how you apply your you know, skills developed over decades to a to a race day, catering for a, a, a racing audience. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we we use uh, seasonal products, which is very important uh, where we can local. So well, actually, everything on the menu is British, but a lot of it is sourced locally. Um, and then what we have to think about when we devise the menu is that it is about getting best quality food out for big numbers. So you've got to, you know, you've got a box clever with the menu um, and to be able to deliver, you know, every single plate of food has to be perfect. Does that mean you have to keep things simple, not wanting to damn you with, you, but you know what I'm getting at? Absolutely, well sometimes, you know, the, the simplest, uh, uh, the simplest plate of food is probably the most difficult one to achieve perfection on, because uh, there's no hiding place. So yeah, it, it, for me it is all about organizing the kitchen, getting the great ingredients, not messing around too much with them, and uh, maximum pleasure. Now the good news for me is that the, the starter has been put right in front of my place, so I feel like it's stuff. I, I should add that um, Neil Phillips, the wine tipster, is here, Lydia obviously with us, uh, has been throughout the pod, and also Sam Cunningham, who has got, had the misfortune of being a, a, a big part of this podcast team as part of her placement for the Racing Media Academy. So Sam, welcome. Thank uh, you. We'll, we'll get you tasting some of this as well. What have I got here, Michelle? So you've got a uh, ceviche of scallops, uh, Scottish scallops. Um, oh, so <laughs> I think your face tells it all, doesn't it? Um, so they've been lightly marinated uh, with a little bit of chili, lime juice, um, olive oil, and um, some cucumber. So very, very fresh, zingy, uh, great way to start the day. I mean, it, it's a summery dish and it's got summer colors as well. I. I absolutely love ceviche. I went off scallops a bit because I think I was having them too much where they were 
either too rubbery or they mm. were undercooked. They're, I mean, are they, are they as difficult to get right as my experiences tell me they are? I, I think so, but if you've got super fresh scallops, serving them raw like this, just lightly marinated in a bit of lemon and orange juice, it's, it's wonderful. Absolutely delicious, isn't That's it? fabulous. That's really, really lovely. You're getting a little hit of chili there as well. So and it's, it's just wonderful, yeah. And so I what think, do you think of that? with the white wine, <laughs> perfect. It's, lovely. it's a good start at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> oh, we've done way more outrageous things than that. Uh, but don't worry about that. We can. <laughs> you know, those, I, we've said this before on this podcast. Those people who see it at Stansted Airport downing a pint at 7 o'clock in the morning, they've got absolutely nothing on us. Uh, Neil Phillips, what are you uh, washing this down with? Well, we've got. Sorry, this... sorry, not washing down. <laughs> I mean that's just that's a disgraceful thing. To say. How are you? How are you accompanying the ceviche? What is the food and wine pairing we've got? Yeah, about, yes. I think that was a question. Yeah. Uh, now we've got a lovely collaboration here between Michel Roux and Michel Chapoutier. Michel Chapoutier is a fantastic winemaker in the south of France. You've worked with Michel for a number of years, haven't you? Now, so. absolutely, and, and my dad uh, did as well. And now uh, Michel Chapoutier has handed over the reins, as it were to his lovely daughter, uh, Mathilde. And so now she's taking uh, uh, the full control of, uh, of Chapoutier wines. But uh, he is a legend in the Rhone Valley and uh, a dear family friend. Yeah, he is actually a really great reputation. So what we've got here is a, is a white blend, dried, a little bit of weight on it, very food versatile, but also just great to drink on its own. Lydia, it's I mean, come on, just have a tasting note from you, Lydia. Come on. Wash <laughs> it down, Lydia. <laughs> Well, Lydia provides the taste, and I'm just going to keep drinking. <laughs> next, uh, I'm going to say floral. Floral, yes, yes like that. Come on, keep no, going. No, no, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> You've got a polite nod for Michelle, which I need that. Got past the finishing line, there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but actually, in all seriousness, it, it's it's versatile, and that's what yes. you want to have across lots of dishes, and that's what we've certainly got here. So, so yeah. we are now going to move on to uh, Michelle. What have I got here? Well, obviously, I've got beef, but. Just yes. explain what you've done. So fillet of beef, um, uh, Sussex fillet of beef, and got a beetroot puree there, a little croquette or, or um, uh, dumpling, a potato dumpling, and uh, a sauce made with red wine and bone marrow. So okay. lots of lovely gutsy flavours, um, and, and the colour of that plate as well is, is, um, is I, I think, yes, it, it's vibrant. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're plating up food as well, you've got to look at the understand the colours as well. It's got to look appealing, and, uh, and it's easy. Well, it's easy for me to say, but it's only about three or four items on the plate. But it looks as if it's taken a long time to dress. Is there a colour that should never be on a plate of food? <laughs> um, I can't think of a colour that should never be on the food, on the plate of food. I, I always think that actually brown food is is always the tastiest, but it's not the most beautiful <laughs> yeah. on a plate. I'm going to let Lydia. We're having to use the wooden forks here in the. Um, <laughs> yeah, sadly. In the, in the media centre, I'm presuming we've got wooden forks in, in case animal rising infiltrate or something like that. But, um, that is delicious. I love bone marrow, yes. and it, it's become omnipresent really in the last decade yeah. on menus, hasn't it? And I think offal in general as well has uh, is on the rise, um, which is great because I'm a huge fan of, of offal. I was brought up on tripe and liver yeah. and kidneys. The, the only time Lydia and I have ever uh, been in the same restaurant at the same time, completely unwittingly, was at St John. Uh, so uh, so mm. I think it probably suggests that we're both <laughs> offal fans. Oh yeah, and the bone marrow at St John's is wonderful, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
How do you like that? Mm, very much. Yeah, you're going straight yeah. into that beetroot. <laughs> I, 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 I love beetroot. So do I. I love so beetroot. I, I grow them. I, I love them. You grow them, mm. do you? Mm. Are you Archway's leading beetroot grower? <laughs> <laughs> I probably am. <laughs> In a field of one. <laughs> uh, the red you are... Um, you're, you're, you're going to have to sink that white before you get to the wood. Don't, don't dare. It's fine. How long's our show this afternoon? <laughs> I'll have sobered up by the time the seventh race is run. It's fine. Mr. Phillips. So we've got a nice, again, the partnership between mm. Michel Chaputi and Michel Roux. Nice southern French red here. I'm not done. I'm in a fixed position this afternoon. Lydia's roving. So I've only got my fixed wing license. Lydia, <laughs> Lydia can fly anywhere. Sam, how are you enjoying the fillet of beef? Just a thumbs up. That's fine. That's how much he's enjoying it. So this red is it's sort of so it's a it's Syrah it's got some Grenache in there a nice blend again I mean you get some great value from the south of France as well that's one of the things to say not just Rome but also around there mm. as well and we don't want something too heavy you want to just have something medium bodied here medium to full bodied you don't want to block buster because again we're going to have guests just drinking this red on its own so you yes. don't want to be too powerful on this but it's so versatile like the white have a taste Nick come on you're let's looking. have some tasting notes come on Nick yeah let's have some <laughs> taste I know I like wine I know what wine I like, but I also know enough to know what I don't know about wine, which is quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I can't say floral, because Lydia said floral about the white. Um, what I would say is that it is, it's quite light, very drinkable, mm. very good for, I would say, lunchtime at the races. I don't cool. think, it's, this, this isn't That's one it. for a big no. party dinner. No, um, and it, yeah, I like it. It ticks the box, doesn't it? It really does, and and it is versatile. I mean, you can have that with the beef and be very happy, but you can also have it with a fish, and it will work very well because it has got. It is floral, actually. You you, you avoided the word floral, <laughs> yeah. but it is. It's I would say more fruity as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's very very fruity, low tannin, and the thing is, we definitely notice more guests now want to drink lighter reds at lunchtime. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Even in comparison to five years ago, yes. we've seen a big change there. Neil Phillips, you have delivered me uh, <laughs> beer from around the world, wine from around the world. You've uh, converted me to the English grape even uh -huh. over time. You brought me some wonderful chefs from uh, across racecourses throughout retiring? Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you have delivered Michelle Rue to the podcast. Your work is done. Thank you very much. That's it now. Episode 756. I'm off or whatever it is. Michelle, thank you very much for, for spending a bit of time with us this morning. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and thank you for, for feeding um, the, the race course so beautifully. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers, you. Cheers, Michelle. Come Cheers. on. Cheers. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't be a racing festival without a visit from the Nick Luck Daily Podcast resident milliner, Lisa Tan. Lisa, of many accolades you have around the world, this surely is the finest. I believe so, and I believe it's the one that gets me most recognised. Well, do you know what? This flatters me enormously. Um, I've had Michelle Rue on the show this morning. Now you're here. Uh, looking great as always. Tell me about today's hat. 
Uh, today's hat is one from my new collection with my signature cinema petals on it, which can be seen in my auction piece, which is on display in the Queen Elizabeth stand right now at Epsom. So you say your signature cinema petals. For those who might not be instantly familiar, if you have seen a lot of my broadcast colleagues, uh, Brittany Ayrton in the United States, yes. Gina Bryce here, and yes. many more, that it's, it, it's as though the flames are emerging from your head. Yeah, exactly. Everyone calls them different things. I've heard them as flames. I've heard them as flowers I've heard them as petals and leaves but I go with petals but yeah that gist I love it thank you tell me why this year's Bedford Derby Festival for you is extra special uh, so the British Hat Guild of which I am a member uh, we've come together and 22 of us have created some beautiful bespoke pieces especially for this charity auction which benefits brain tumor research and the Jockey Club have kindly hosted it and have helped us the whole way through. So the hats are actually on display uh, in the Queen Elizabeth stand for you to have a look at in the flesh. And you can bid on them online until Sunday the 11th. And um, if you want a hat in time for Royal Ascot and you want an incredible piece, uh, we can definitely get it to you by then. And no one will have one of these hats. They're completely bespoke. And the inspiration behind all these hats is actually the royal silks because we want to celebrate the coronation. So the hats are created in a variety of colours, obviously of the king's silks, which is scarlet, purple, black and gold. And if they're one of those colours that you think you can work into your outfit, then I would definitely encourage you to take a look. And Lisa, we'll see you at Royal Ascot, yes? Absolutely, you will. Excellent. Look forward to it. Lisa Tan, resident milliner. Well, how about that then? Michelle Rue. Michelle Rue. Standing right here. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now... Laura, what do you make of the podcast? <laughs> do you think... I think the normal epithet is going to be dumped. It's going to be that frigging good podcast now, <laughs> isn't it? For this edition, anyway. I'm, yeah. I'm trying this pudding, which is amazing. Okay, and tell me about it. Well, it's, it's sort of like... There's a sort of bright red carapace which you then put your fork into and it's full of chocolate and fruit it's amazing the word carapace only reminds me of the greatest school report that i ever uh, ever received tell me um he wears a carapace of self-delusion which which teacher which teacher wrote this was dr he's a very eminent man as well (laughs) clearly dr christopher tyerman and, yeah, and, taught me and, history. And this was about you. Yeah, yeah. And and did you? Did You're enjoying this <laughs> an awful lot, aren't you? <laughs> far too much. Um, far, far too much. <laughs> anyway. And when and and when did you drop the carapace of self delusion? <laughs> Little. <laughs> Little did he. Sam, stop laughing. Come on. I would never. <laughs> you are. We established earlier in the podcast, Lydia, that military order would win the derby. Yes, and you said that was a very safe, boring answer. But if it's the correct answer, it doesn't matter. What was your answer? My answer is that I am... I'm pretty sure that I'm going to tip a rest. uh, But the Foxes, I still think, is too big a price. Does that don't know? A little bit, at this point. 10.44. Do you have any other sage advice for our podcast listeners between... 
now on the end of Saturday. Mr. Wagyu is running into form, isn't he? He is. Mm. He actually ran all right at York yeah, the other day. Yeah, That's what I thought. And that six furlong handicap at Epsom, it's gonna, he likes it. Does he win it? Didn't he win it last year? Is it, it's also, as night follows day, John Quinn has to have a winner on Derby Day. Yes. It almost always happens. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm having a look at Mr. Wagyu. Excellent. And uh, we're just going to finish off our Wagyu here. Uh, and as we do so, I will wish you a happy... But most importantly, as uneventful as is feasible, Betfred Derby. See you on the other side. See you Monday, folks. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.